This week's episode features Rabbi David Foreman, the lead scholar at AlephBeta.org and the author of a number of books, especially the book that is discussed in this episode, which is Genesis, A Parsha Companion. If you don't know about Aleph Beta and Rabbi Foreman's work, I encourage you to check it out, especially in the coming weeks. They're animated Torah videos, which is something that they do, and I would throw in, and you'll hear in the episode, as Rabbi Foreman describes it, it's, it's Omek Pshuta Shel Mikra in cartoon, are full of insightful and innovative content. We all want to find meaning and connection when we learn Torah, and what Aleph Beta does so well is to look closely at the Torah's text and make them meaningful and relevant in our lives today. Check out alephbeta.org as you learn Boratius and have the joyful experience of learning it for the first time. And for a limited time, the listeners of Sfarim Cheddar get $18 off an annual membership. All you need to do is go to alephbeta.org, that's A-L-E-P-H-B-E-T-A.org, and enter coupon code SC, so Sfarim Cheddar, 21, when you subscribe. So again, SC, 21, when you subscribe for $18 off an annual uh, premium membership. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Sfarim Chatter Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Rabbi David Foreman, who is the founder and principal educator at alephbeta.org. And he has served as an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University and as a lead writer and editor for the Art Scroll uh, Gemara Translation Project. Um, now, he also is the author of a number of books. Uh, mainly, we'll be focusing today on his work at Aleph Beta and his uh, new books called uh, A Parsha Companion. He has so far published Voracious and Shemais. Those are published in conjunction with, I believe, um, Magid, which is Koran Publishers. And there's also a number of other books. He's also the author of The Beast That Crouches at the Door, The Queen You Thought You Knew, and The Exodus You Almost Passed Over. So thank you, Rabbi Foreman, for joining me. Hey, Nachi, it is great to be here. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. So let's start off. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I uh, I live currently in, in, in Woodmere, New York, um, but uh, I didn't, I'm not a native of, of the East Coast. I grew up in, uh, in California, in the Bay Area. You know, people say California and they say, oh, uh, do you know uh, Schwartz in L.A.? And I that was 400, 400 miles south of where I grew up, right? So I grew up really in a one-room little schoolhouse in, in uh, living in Berkeley, California, commuting to Oakland. Um, so it was a very different kind of Jewish education than most of us uh, on, on the East Coast and, and in Israel are used to. Um, I'm proud to say I was the valedictorian of my uh, eighth grade class, which was all of three people. Um, we had 13 people in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade all together. Um, and, uh, but it was, a, it was a sweet little school and it gave me the, my first taste for, uh, for love of learning. Um, but, uh, but I grew up in, in, in California. There was a wonderful little Orthodox school in Berkeley run by um, the rabbi's name was, uh, uh, was Yosef Leibowitz. He currently lives in, uh, splits his time between Parsaba and, and Efrat, but he really gave me my first taste of um, of just a revelatory way of thinking about Chomesh. I remember when he um, helped me prepare for my bar mitzvah drasha, just as a young kid, he really opened my eyes by, uh, instead of doing what most people do, which is like, here's your pshetel, now go and repeat it back to me. It was like, uh, read through this parsha and tell me your three big questions on the parsha and we'll discuss them. And I just found that so, um, so freeing. So uh, it, it was just, fascinating. 
Um, but that that kind of launched me on uh, on, on the beginnings of a path. Um, my father was a psychiatrist. He lived in uh, we lived in again in Berkeley. He died when I was young after a long struggle with cancer. My mom remarried, bringing me out to uh, uh, remarried Zev Wolfson. I joined the Wolfson family and um, came to the East Coast um, in uh, when I was a young teenager and made the real transition from slightly long-haired Berkeley kid to uh, uh, pretty straight-laced Kew Gardens, uh, you know, uh, upbringing um, in uh, Ferris Moshe and, you know, that whole world over there. Um, and that, you know, in short order, I uh, took me to Rabbi Riskin School and then to Nair Yisrael, where I was for, for many, many years. So that's kind of like my early background. Okay, so... Obviously, well, uh, I, I should mention something I forgot right at the beginning is that the, what alephbeta.org is, people are probably listening to me, what is that? So uh, as you put it to me very eloquently before, it's the Oymik Pshuta Shomikra in cartoon format. So it's a very in-depth, I, I like that a lot. If people are familiar with it, they probably appreciate that as well. It's, you know, there are cartoon, you know, cutesy animated videos, and um, it's really, you know, delving into the Pshat of the Psokim. And the Tyra, and you know, we'll get into Aleph Beta and your books, which are really, I think, I think I think it's an outgrowth somewhat of Aleph Beta or similar. I don't know if it is exactly from that. Um, so, I mean, let's just start off even before that, though. So, how how did you get into to Chumash, and then we'll approach your interesting and novel interpretation and the way that you learn it. But how did you, you know, that's I, I, we mentioned I mentioned that you were involved in the art school translation uh, project, the Gemara. So that's different than Chumash, and you're working on Chumash here. Yeah, very different than Chumash. Although the truth is, is that my work for Art Scroll in the Gemara translations was a very important predicate for my work on Chumash. It gave me a lot of skills, uh, which I don't know if I could have done the work I'm doing without the rigorous training. I mean, I spent seven years working uh, on the Gemara project, uh, first in writing Kedushin volumes one and two, most of it, and then working as an editor under um, Ravi Cheskel Danziger, who doesn't live far from Yunachi, out there uh, in Lakewood. Uh, so Rabbi Danziger was quite a mentor to me in life, in Hashkafa, and in other ways. Uh, I think his influence is felt uh, in, in my work as well. But one of the things that he did um, that uh, is, again, you know, you mentioned that what Aleph Beta is, is Omek Pshuta Shalmikra. In a way, that's really what Art Scroll is trying to do in their Gemara series, is being Omek Pshuta Shal, you know, Shal Gemara in a way, right? And, and you know, Yechezka always used to say, like, learning pshat is, is, gets a bad name. It's often seen as simplistic because we translate the name pshat as simplistic, but it's anything but, sim- but simplistic, right? To find something simple, um, a simple way through complex material is uh, one of the deepest things you could possibly do. Um, and uh, he kind of began to teach, to teach me the art of what it is to boil something down to... Uh, something very complex down to its simplest form and to stop before you oversimplify, right? And that's uh, that's a real art. Um, I can tell you funny stories, actually, back when I, you know, I started doing when I was a bacher in Eretz Yisrael. I was working under him on Mishnayis Bacharas before we even started, um, started Gemara. And uh, he... Um, one of the things he taught me also is just the, the skill of, of in, in writing of... Uh, really how much power an editor has um, and how subtle an editor can be. 
Um, uh, you know, Nahi, you work in, in Svarim a lot. And, and uh, one of the things I think we, we take for granted is the extent to which the Svarim who really matter for us are those who are great writers. You know, we were talking off camera about a few people who we, we won't mention, don't want to impugn them, right? But you were complaining about the, you know, the length of their writing and that they needed an editor. And editors, you know, really great editors. It, it, it's, it's, you know, if you think about Rashi, and why Rashi became Robin shall call Yisrael. I think a lot of it had to do with he was such a good writer, right? It wasn't just that it, it was some of, you know, as, as holy a man as he was and as much as he knew, but his ability, his clarity of thinking and his ability to distill that thinking with real concision on a page where he could just make things flow for you was magical, right? And to me, I think, you know, one of my early, I think, um, if you ask, like, what got me involved in in Chumash, it was uh, uh, part of it was, you know, can you can we do that? Can we, you know, is there a ch- the the challenge of creating a book um, which is a page turner, which is really really well written, but is a safer at the same time? Like those things usually don't go together. You know, you write a safer. I'm just putting my thoughts out there. And whoever wants to read it will read it, right? If I'm reading a mystery, if I'm writing a mystery novel, I pay attention to the craft of writing. But what if you wrote a safer and you really paid attention to the craft of writing, and you and you, and you wanted to write it as a page turner, a page turner as a safer, you know, on Chumash, it, it struck me as a as a wonderful challenge, and that's kind of what led me to the beast that crouches at the door. Um, I realize I, I've sort of I still haven't quite answered your question, so I'll just quickly say this. How did I get to, to Chumash in particular? Part of it had to do with a move, with the kind of move that I described to you before, moving from the West Coast to the East Coast. Back in, in the West Coast, in Shul, right, Chumash was a thing. You know, Rabbi Libu, you know, his, his drushas were amazing. Even as a 10-year-old, I remember listening to them and being captivated. And somehow I remember moving to, to high school in, in, on the East Coast, and somehow Chumash just wasn't on the radar anymore. It was like, you know, you got uh, homework that you had to learn Chumash with Rashi and get tested on it on Sunday morning. But nobody actually spent any time on it. We had spent time on Tarsh Peh, not on Chumash, and I just couldn't fathom it. It just didn't, right? If you really believed that God wrote this book, like we, Hakol Modim, that God wrote this book, right? It wasn't as, as great as Ravina and Ravashi were, right? They're not God, right? So God wrote this book. And so you've got to believe that God was smart enough to write a book that that could touch us, that that any generation could pick up and and read and be uh, and be captivated by. And yet, um, why were we ignoring it? Um, and somehow, um, I, I I remember in my early turn, teen years just being frustrated, having the sense that you uh, there must be a way to read this book just in shot without even without commentaries but just if you think about commentaries any commentary read the book before they wrote the commentary they didn't read another commentary they read the book and when they're talking to you they're assuming that you read the book too right so there's something called reading the book itself with basic reading comprehension which somehow seemed to be lost in our world the all Chumash courses were learning the commentaries without really learning the book. So the same way that you couldn't, you know, if you went to an advanced Gemara shir and uh, 
I said, and you said to somebody, well, I learned Rav Chaim, and I learned the Ritva, and I learned a really Geshmaka Shari Yosher, but I haven't actually learned the Blat Gemara that this is all on. That, you know, you look you like you're crazy, like you've got to start with the text. And somehow it felt like we weren't really doing that in a serious way in Chumash. So it was a frustration that I experienced in, in younger years. And I think that frustration over time is something which, which propelled me into the kind of work that I'm doing now. So I'm curious, did you mention this? I'm curious how much you, you think that, for example, Rashi plays into that. And I'll tell you what I mean by that is that Rashi, obviously, like mentioned, Robin shall, shall call Yisrael, and, and we've all gained so much from Rashi. And I, I, I don't mean this in any negative way, but Rashi, you know, we know the famous Rashbam who spoke to him where, you know, he said, oh, it's not really Pashib Shat, so to speak. But either way, you know, someone once told me, I think he said the Briskorov said it, that for us, Rashi is Pashib Shat. You know, I don't know, but that's the thing, right? Everybody learns Rashi and Rashi's understanding of, uh, you know, of the Psukim with the Midrashim, and they come out with that kind of understanding. So how much of this is that they always, and everybody, the Pashup Shah, I think you do discuss this in, in your books and stuff, but, you know, everybody's reading the text and they already know this is what happens here. And they're all basing on the Medrash. And when you, you know, if, you know, I know I do Shnai Mikra, and then you're, you're reading the Psukim and you read Unkelis and you're like, wait, that's really what happened? You just read the actual text and then but Rashi says something else. So that's what we understand the Pshat and the Pasuk is, but that's not really, I mean, I don't know. We don't know. So we look at the different Mepharshim, what necessarily the Chumash is saying. I mean, how much of that, you know, plays into it? Sure. I mean, I think, uh, you, you know, you make a good point with Rashi. And I think a lot of it gets back to what a good writer Rashi was. Rashi is such a seductive Mepharsh in a way because he's, 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 he he's so clear when he writes, um, and and Rashi is a, is is a, I think a very difficult and fascinating but very difficult mafarish probably one of the most difficult rishonim to learn. I think it's ironic that we consider Rashi the easiest mafarish that you know the simplest thing in the world is Chumash Rashi. Rashi's you know Rashi can be um, very very difficult to understand as 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 well as he writes. And the reason is, is that it's not always clear what Rashi's doing. My sense is, and it was, you know, Rashi never really defines for us what he thought the meaning of his work was, what he was actually trying to do. But if you had to sort of reverse engineer it, my personal feeling is that, um, is that Rashi sometimes is telling Yubshat, but he's not always telling Yubshat. So when is the sometimes and when is the not, you know, how do you know the difference? So with my experience with Rashi, it's that when the pshat is difficult, it's kind of like in Gemara. You know how Rashi's silent a lot of times in Gemara? When Rashi's silent in Gemara, it means you can figure this out yourself. You don't need him, right? When does he step in? When you really need him. So I'll I'll step in. So that's what's happening in Chumash also. In other words, what happens with Rashi is that when you really need him, he'll tell you pshat. So when you get to Parshas Truma all of a sudden, and you have no idea what Pamon Rimon is in the Mishkan, so Rashi is going to come and, and take your hand and hold on to it and say, trust me, Yidala, it's going to be fine. Here's what this means, and I'll explain it to you, right? And I'll explain all the measurements. And all of a sudden, Rashi transforms into this wonderful book that actually will tell you pshat. The only difference between Rashi and Gemara and Rashi and Chumash, I think, is when you get to uh, when you get to the areas of Chumash that are simpler, Rashi is not silent like he is in Gemara. What he does instead there is he uses the opportunity to introduce Midrashim to you. And what he does when he introduces Midrashim for you is he seems to be right, connecting Tarshav and Tarshav Pen in a very interesting kind of way. 
This really leads into a larger discussion of how you understand medrash, which is something which I have an interest in in Aleph Beta. Medrashim are a big part of life in Aleph Beta. When I say it's Omek Shuto Shalmikra, it's Omek Shuto Shalmikra informed by medrash in a way. Um, if you would have to, if, if, the, 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 I think the commentary which is most significant in Aleph Beta land is really even more than the Rishonim is really the most ancient commentary we have, which is Medrash. And the question is, how do you learn Medrash? And one of the questions is, how did Rashi learn Medrash? So I think what you find also a lot in Rashi is, you know, one of the things that, you know, if you go to seminary or if you go to high school, if you go to anyone, they'll say, well, what's, Ra- what's bothering Rashi? So the real question, what's bothering Rashi is a very tricky question. And I'll give you my really quickie answer to, I think, a really handy thing which you can try at home when you learn Rashi and you are struggling with what's bothering Rashi. Usually the answer to what's bothering Rashi is really what's bothering in the Medrash. And usually what's bothering the Medrash is not one thing, but two things, right? And one thing is overt and one thing is covert. I call it my uh, my um, my trigger and gunpowder theory. If you're going to fire a gun, you need two things, right? You have to pull a trigger, but you also need gunpowder in the chamber, Right. In order for a medrash to be a medrash, you got to have a trigger and you got to have gunpowder in the chamber. The trigger is the nominal um, diuk, which is happening in the text, which is which is an anomaly which Rashi or the medrash is picking up on and becomes the basis for a drash. So, for example, if you're learning the story of, of Basparo and you get to the words Batishlacha Samasa Batikacha, right? So uh, you know, uh, my kid came home from uh, from uh, from Ghan, you know, in kindergarten with this long white arm of the daughter of Pharaoh. Right? I immediately knew what it was. It's the daughter of Pharaoh's white long arm. Think, oh no, how do I explain this to him? It's like you know, it's one of these midrashim that that make you jump out of your seat. Like I'm about to explain to all my friends that that really she didn't send her maidservant. Right, she sent to to pick up little baby Moshe in the Nile, but her arm actually extended, and it's in it. And the question is like, how do you even understand that? And it, and here's the difficulty with Rashi that and, and the way we've grown up with it, which is that because Rashi's so good at telling pshat to us, we kind of live under this illusion that even when Rashi's telling us midrashim, he's telling us pshat, and it leads us to confuse what pshat and drash was. But I think Rashi would be horrified if he ever understood that that's what we were doing with it, confusing Pshad and Drash. It's Rabba Senu Amru. This is, what the, this is Drash. It's a whole other level of understanding. It's a level of understanding which harmonizes with Pshat. Um, and, I, and by harmonize, I really mean harmonize. You know, Nachi, I don't know if you play piano, but if you play piano, you know there's a right hand, there's a left hand of piano, right? So the right hand typically carries the melody and the left hand carries the harmony. So if you play just the melody, you know, it's a very nice thing. You played Old MacDonald How to Farm with just the melody. But if you just listen to the harmony of Old MacDonald How to Farm, the left hand, it sounds like complete nonsense. It's just, you know, completely from left field. But if you listen to them two together, right, there's depth, there's richness. So if you think of Pshat as the right hand of the piano, and you think of Drash as the left hand of the piano, right, you read Drash without Pshat, it's like it, it makes your head explode. What her her hand stretched like the Fantastic Four in the comics, and 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 she reached and she grabbed Baby Moshe, and then it's like Nach. Let me ask you a question: If you were the daughter of Paro, you know, a nice self-respecting member of the royal family, and here you were taking a little stroll by the Nile, right? Everything going well, got your maidservants with you, and all of a sudden 
you see these little cries from the bulrushes, right? So you you, you want to investigate. So you, you think you're going to send your maidservant to go check and investigate. But all of a sudden, Nachi, your arm, your trusty arm begins to extend, right? Like the magic, like the Fantastic Four, right? Like 35 feet and then grabs this, 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 you know, this crib and then takes it back to you, whoosh, and brings it back. What would you do next if that happened to you? I mean, honestly, if it was Nahi walking along, right, and all of a sudden you're literally your arm extended, like, it would destroy the story. Wouldn't you go rushing back to the palace, screaming, my arm, my arm, you know, get me a doctor. I mean, that's what you would do, right? Like, you, you, like how could real life go on immediately after that, after that having? So really, if you think about our tradition, if you look at all the Mepharshim, right? and then I'm not saying anything controversial here. You look at the Marsha, you look at the Rambam, you look at Rav Avram ben Rambam, you look at the Ramchal and his Maimar Allah Goddess, you look at the, the Maral, whoever it is, right? No one really took a literal understanding of Midrashim. They all understood that Medrash was getting to something deeper and was, was, was giving a take on Pshat, a harmony to Pshat. They were seeing something that was happening in Pshat and they were responding to it. And this gets back to the sort of the trigger and gunpowder theory. So in a, in a nutshell, I'd just say this. The trigger is what's nominally happening in Pshat. In other words, there's something strange happening, which is The word Amma, when she sends her maidservant, can be a homonym. It can mean not only maidservant, it can mean arm, right? So the drash is going on the possibility that it doesn't mean maidservant, it means arm, right? What if she sent her arm? It's not the pshat, but that's the drash. The drash is that she sent her, that, that she, that, 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 she sent her arm instead of sending the maidservant. But that's only the trigger. Chazal would never say what they were saying without gunpowder. Gunpowder is that Chazal had a larger 50,000 view, foot view of what was going on. And they were bothered with larger themes within the story, right? And the larger themes within the story, I don't know exactly what they were, but I can theorize, right? Which is like, you know, Nahi, if you put yourself in the shoes of the daughter of Pyro at that moment, so you might say, like, think about what she actually did. Like, hop what she really did. Here's the daughter of Paro. You're the daughter of Paro. You grew up in the... For, actually, forget it. You're not the daughter of Paro. You're the maidservant. You're the Amma. Imagine you're the Amma, right? So I play daughter of Paro, and I, I say, Nahi, my Amma. Do me a favor. I hear there's crying in the bushes, right? Can you do me a favor and go, go get the child? So you're a smart guy. You know who's crying in the bushes, right? We're, it's Nazi Germany over here, right? We're throwing babies in the Nile. Obviously, if there's this little foundling in the bushes, it's a Jewish child. And all of a sudden, daughter of Paro comes along. She's going to get herself into trouble. She's saying, oh, Nachi, do me a favor. Go get the child. Well, who pays your salary as, 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 as maidservant to, to, to the queen over here? What's your, what do you think your job is right now? What are you supposed to do? What would you what would you do? Right. It's like the Divya Rav, Divya Talmud, you know, kind of yeah, thing. Exactly. It's, it's like your highness, you know, I understand you're compassionate, all of that, but the king has an order, and all these children are supposed to be thrown in the Nile. And that's just the way it's supposed to be. But imagine like I was really pushed to you and I said, no, it's the right thing to do. Nahi, I I insist 
that you go and that you bring me this child. So you might say, well, all right, you know, Highness, certainly I'll do that. But do me a favor, like, do not, we'll, we'll pass it off to some Jewish mother, right? You can't, you can't bring up this child as a, you know, in the palace. She says, no, I must do it. I'm personally responsible. I have to take care of this child in the palace of the king. So you'd say, like, your highness, at least don't bring him up as a Jew. Never tell him who he is. But look what she does. She tells him who he is, right? Because he goes out to see what's going on with his brothers, what's going on with his what what's going on with his with his, with, his, with his brothers. So clearly she he's aware of who he is because she told him who he is. So if you think about what she actually accomplished, she accomplished something that literally seems impossible to accomplish. How are you supposed to actually do that? If you're the daughter of Pyro, how are you going to get away with that in the palace? It's like Hitler's daughter deciding to take this little Jewish kid and then show him off before the Reichstag once a year. Like, you don't get to do that if you live in Nazi Germany. How does she get to do this? And she did it. I think that's the larger question that Chazal are dealing with. In other words, yes, the word Amma is a homonym for the word for, for arm. But what Chazal are, are darshaning, they're saying that there's a sense in which as she sent her Amma, in fact, she was doing something crazy. If you think about your arm's reach as a metaphor for what you can actually achieve in life, right? There's certain things you want to achieve, but your arm can't reach there. That's beyond your reach. Well, what if you ever reached for something that was really beyond your reach, but it was good and it was noble and it was right? Could you reach it? Chazal are saying you can sometimes, right? That miracles can happen. And that's what happened with her. So her arm, right? So I think when Rashi's bringing down these midrashim, he's not trying to tell you that the rules of Pshat have changed, that this is how you translate the Pasuk, and anybody who translates the Pasuk as, as Amma, as an Apikoros, as a, a, right, and, a, and you have to translate it this way. And I think taking this approach to Medrash, frankly, I think it saves a lot of kids from being Apikorosim, because you read Medrash and it makes no sense to you, and it's crazy, and I have to believe this, I have to, you know, so I, I think that this is one of the cases where Rashi's telling us something other than Pshat and never meant anything other than that. Okay, so that was uh, a Rashi discussion. You know, I would I would I would mention you know you know two more things to Rashi. And you said Rashi's really hard. I mean, yeah, you look at you know you have the people may know the Yud Aleph Rashi Chumash, and there's another whole another Chumash with another bunch of Mefarshim by Philip and Eretz published many more Mefarshim, and there's so many more Mefarshim. And it's like I said, which Medrash does Rashi bring? Which one does he leave out? You know, what does he tweak in the Medrash? You know, there's so much there. Uh, another yep. thing about Pshat that I would mention also is that, and then we get then it maybe maybe an issue that we have today also is with the Diktuk, and everyone gets to the Diktuk Rashi, and it's like oh just just get through that let's just skip it you know it's like it's like Ibn Ezra who learned you know Ibn Ezra what's going on over there so that's like another issue but that's for another you know discussion but um so I you know we, we did kind of get into your style over there I was going to ask you know what what is your 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 style so you know um but something that I would I would say is as I was you know preparing for this for this podcast you know I saw you had an episode with uh, Ari Koretsky of Jews You Should Know so I took a listen to that a really wonderful episode you talked a lot more about yourself there and you said something interesting there that I like that I want to men- you know, bring up. You said you mentioned that you're not going to do Shalashudas Torah, as you called it. Um, so maybe you want to, you know, explain what you mean by that expression, what you don't do, and rather what you do do. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think that one of the challenges we have in Chumash, really, uh, you know, getting back to this issue that I struggled with as a teenager, how come nobody's learning Chumash? Like, it didn't make any sense to me. If you believe God wrote it, why why weren't people learning it? And 
I, I think the answer to some extent is that in Gemara, for whatever reason, we settled on a Dera Halimud, right? So once you have a Dera Halimud, there's a methodology, there's an approach, right? So once there's an approach, and Nachi, you know, you've learned in yeshiva for a while, and I've learned in yeshiva for a while. Even though we didn't learn in the same yeshivas, we can have an intelligent, advanced discussion of Arve Psachim, and we know what the rules are. We know what a good question to ask is. We know it's not a good question. We know what a klotzkasha is, because there's a methodology. But imagine there was no methodology, and all you had was a Sansino Gemara, right? And I had a Sansino Gemara. And now we're supposed to discuss things at the level of Rav Chaim. We wouldn't be able to do it right? You, you can't do that. You need agreed upon rules. You need some sort of approach, some sort of derech And somehow when it comes to Chumash, it's been, we've had a hard time doing it, right? Where's the derech So it's almost like there's no agreed upon rules. Um, and, and that makes for a real challenge. I suspect it wasn't always like that. I actually think going back to the Medrash, the Medrash had agreed upon rules, that the Balaya Medrash were working with a certain system, I think, uh, more or less within Drash, a certain understanding of things, certainly within Drash that they were doing, I think even within Pshat that we were doing, but somehow it's been lost for us. And the, the difficulty is, is that without um, without that, we can get lost in, in what I call, you know, one or two extremes, each of which feel wanting to me. The two extremes are what I call sort of academic, you know, really classic academic Torah and Shal Shittas Torah, right? So, you know, so these two extremes, the academic Torah on the one hand and, um, and, and Shal Shittas Torah on the other hand, academic Torah, right? Academic Torah is very rigorous, right? There are certain rules. We understand what we're doing. And yet, somehow the problem with, with academic Torah is that often can just not mean anything, right? At the end of the day, I don't have anything to take out of this. I can get into a very, you know, a, a very nuanced discussion of what, of, of what a certain word means and, uh, you know, and, and compare it to Mesopotamian culture, what similar words might be elsewhere. And there's, you know, perhaps something to be gained by that. But in terms of the larger spirituality of what I'm supposed to take away as an Obed Hashem, as someone who wants to serve God, there's, there's often very little to be gained. On the other hand, at the other extreme, there's what we would call sermonics. Right. If I'm a rabbi and I'm uh, right um, and I'm giving a drasha, so um, or I need something to say, you know, you look in the sparm store, there are literally sparms that you can buy that are called something to say. I mean, that's what they're called. Right. So if you think of if I'm reading a book called something to say, what's your claim on truth? They're like, do you even think that you're approaching something that might actually be true? No, I, I just need something to say, right? It's not even an, an issue that that this might actually be a, a way that you could really understand something. And so it's almost like there's a social contract that Shal Shuddha's Torah has, right? Which is, I'm going to get up and I'm going to speak for five, 10 minutes, and I'm going to say something utterly preposterous, right? It's just, it, it just is. It's just mental gymnastics. It's pilpal. I'm going to come up with things, that, you know? But it's something to say. And everyone's going to sit and they're going to nod their heads politely. And when I'm done, they're going to say, Yashakach, Yashakach, that was really wonderful, right? 
but they don't think for a moment that anything I've said is is actually shot, is like really true or could be true. And the person who said it doesn't think it's true either, but it's this sort of social contract we have that, you know, this is what we do and, and you'll congratulate me and everything is fine. But for people who are really looking to, again, be inspired with what God said, you know, if I came to you and I said, so it's like, how many times have you read Chumash and, or, or how many times have you sort of faced ethical dilemmas or wanted real direction in how to live life and you've gone to the Chumash for answers, right? So it's like, how many times in our world would we answer that that's what we've done? We'd say, no, like I've talked to uh, talked to my Rosh Hashiva, right? I, I, you know, there's a mashpia that I talked to and I talk, yeah, but like, did you ever consult God's book, right? So what are you crazy? Am I an evangelical Christian? God's book? What, who do you think I am? Right? It's like, what? So you have to be an evangelical Christian to believe that Genesis would have something to say to you. Like what? I've, like this is what we've come to. So to me, this was a real crisis that it can't be that there's just, you know, that there's only three possibilities. One possibility is that I just learned what the Mepharshim say, and I just put it out there, and this is what the Ramban says, this is what the Sforno says, this is what they said, and, and, and here's what it is. But when it comes to me actually looking at the text myself, the actual text, I'm forced between Shalashuddha's Torah and mental gymnastics, which I don't really think are true, or this sort of, you know, shaving down this word, this academic kind of style, which didn't have meaning. What I was seeking to do was see, is there a way to actually learn omic shutal shamikra is there a methodology to be developed which uh, I, and i to be honestly true with you nahi that's not actually how i got into it it wasn't like i was thinking can i develop a methodology it didn't really work that way i wasn't really thinking methodology i was just thinking is there any way to bridge this is there any way to actually look at this text and and to read it closely and to be able to 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 get to an understanding that felt real, that felt like this is the depth of chat, and um, and, and would it have something to say to me? And what I discovered is that um, that there was something remarkable out there in Chumash, which is that if you were willing to really kind of leave your baggage at the door, and um, uh, that remarkable things could 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 happen. What I mean by that, just just very briefly, is that by leave your baggage at the door is again, you know, in the sort of Shalashuddha's Torah realm, or even more charitably, sermonics, right? If I'm a rabbi in shul. So if I'm a rabbi in shul, I'm thinking, you know, so what's my drasha going to be this week? Oh, I don't want to talk about Lashon Hara. Okay, you know, people shouldn't talk Lashon Hara. They should, they should be nicer to each other. All right, but if Parsha's told us, so where am I going to see them? Told, oh, I know where I can see them told us. So I, I have a preconceived notion of what I want to talk about. Then I'm going to hang it on one or two psukim. The psukim don't quite talk about Lashon Hara, but I can kind of force it in. It's like if I raise my voice and I, you know, I use my, my thunderous voice, I can get people to, right? So, so how inspiring, right? How inspiring is that? And you start with your baggage. You start with a preconceived notion. It's not inspiring because the preconceived notion you have is a preconceived notion that others know you have. So you're not really saying anything new or anything that actually surprised you. And the psukim didn't really help you get there. So the, the sermon isn't that powerful. But what if you left your baggage at the door? What if you did drushes differently? What if you said, you know what? Um, I'm not going to learn Chumash. 
starting with what I want to get out from it. I'm not, I'm not going to say, I want to talk about this ethical teaching and that ethical teaching. I'm talking just going to learn Chomish. I'm going to learn it the way it is. And I'm, I'm going to really observe what's there and engage in close reading of the text. What I found is that marvelous things happen, that close reading will lead you over time, if you're patient, to be able to listen and discern something very special in the text that is meaningful to you in surprising and astonishing ways. It will teach you something that you didn't know before, right? And 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 that you honestly didn't know before um, and something that you can share to others. And that's kind of the spirit behind what I started doing in my books and what I was trying to do in Aleph Beta. So now that you you know kind of mentioned the your 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 style, obviously, um, I should mention you talked about the, the you know Shalshlus as you're calling it, and it became like this uh, culture. I don't say a vart. Everyone always has to speak. They say a vart. They find the safer with a vart, and or or like you're saying that the rub just the kind of hangs his preconceived notion, his uh, you know shoehorns it into the pasuk or, or that kind of thing. Everyone. I guess in the Pardes, they don't stay so much with, with the Pshat aspect of, of, of Pardes so much. So um, what are some sort of examples? Obviously, we discussed earlier, you know, you, we've been the whole Rashi discussion. We discussed the Baspari and you kind of point this stuff out. So that's also that obviously some, you know, kind of example of what you do. So what's kind of an example? And obviously, we'll get into Aleph Beta in the books, but they're very sure. similar. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example from an upcoming Parsha, um, one that I found fascinating. And again, one of the interesting things about you know, what, what's, what sort of happened was, I talked to you about close reading, is that over time, I've been doing this about 20 years, I've just kind of developed just basic close reading techniques. And it, it's kind of like, you know, everything you needed to know you learned in kindergarten. It's not rocket science. It, it's Each technique is very, very simple. But when you use them together, they can be very, very powerful as just ways of really, really listening to what's happening in shot. One of them, just to talk about some of the techniques, and then we can put it together a little bit. Some of the basic techniques are, first of all, um, one of the, the problems we have when we learn is, it strikes me, is that we know the stories too well, right? Which is that because you've grown up with the story over and over again, we often can't see how surprising the stories really are. We can't intuit the questions which HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants us to ask about this because they're just sort of sort of obvious questions, right? So it knows you, you if you know the story of Gan Eden and the Garden of Eden too well, so you'll you'll never think to, to ask a question like, so uh, why would a Kaddish Baruch Hu want me to eat from? Why why would he create a tree that he doesn't want anybody to eat from? Like that sounds like a strange thing to do. Like why would why put it there, right? And and then if you say, well, it's a Nisaya, and I get it, but if a if a parent said. Uh, Sonny, I'm going to put a chocolate chip cookie right in the middle of the uh, of the table, and and his whole purpose is you not to eat from it. Sounds a little capricious. Like wh- why would you why would you do such a thing? So part of it is just it, it is looking at stories almost as if you've never read them before, and beginning to 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 ask yourself if life was like a non from person who came across the story for the very first time what would be surprising about it, right? Why did God not like what was going on in Migdal Bavel? Like Migdal Bavel seems like a fine thing. It never says that they were rebelling against God. They were building a tower. So what's wrong with building a tower? These are basic kinds of questions that, you know, just be aware of the basic questions that that, that anybody should ask. And those questions are opportunities to begin to see, to begin to see something deeper. Um, and then, you know, many other just, just basic questions 
um, you know, basic techniques. Um, take it apart and put it back together again. Can you outline a para? Can you understand, right, uh, the three ideas here and how idea A leads to idea B that leads to C? Is there a break? Do you understand there's idea B and C, but you don't understand how B leads to C? So that's like that's like an interesting thing, right? Uh, to, fo- to be able to focus on that. To focus on um, something I call it's a Sesame Street game. But, you know, which one of these things is not like the other? Oftentimes the... The Chumash will group together four things, and you know it seems like three out of the four is in a certain category, but the fourth uh, doesn't doesn't really seem to fit. So, so how do we see uh, how do we see those the, those working together? So, these are some of the basic techniques. At some of the more advanced levels, what I found is a, a very fascinating thing, and I'll just mention it to you very briefly. And I think it's a technique that the Medrash will use over and over and over again. The Medrash doesn't give it a name, it just uses it. But uh, to, to put the technique out there, Nachi, what if somebody came to you and says, you know, I'm doing Shnai Mikra and Echad Targum this year, and I've gone through all the classics. You know, I read through Rashi one year, I did the Sforno another year, I did the Ramban another year. And you're the Sfarim guy, you know, you're Mr. Sfarim Chatter. I'm looking for a good, authoritative, accepted Mefarish that I haven't read yet, something, something ancient, something classic, something I can really trust something I could really learn through Chumash with. So give me, I've been through all the classics. Who should I read now? What? It's funny. First of all, it's funny you asked me the ones that I went through. <laughs> First of all, you, you picked the, the ones. Um, we were discussing this before. I mean, somewhat. Um, well, Ibn Ezra, if that's not too... Uh, too that's too, all right. Too I mean, he's pretty reliable. So what if I told you that the oldest and most trusted Mefarish Older than even Ebenezer, older even than the Medrash itself, the most reliable Mefarish is actually the Chumash itself. What if the Chumash was its own commentary? So you come to me and say, Foreman, that's crazy. How could the Chumash be its own commentary? I mean, the Chumash can't be its own commentary. So what if I said to you, well, what if I could show you that, you know, if you're reading, um, uh, you're reading, uh, you know, you're reading a parak, and you come across this strange word or phrase, and you realize that word or phrase really only appears one other time in Chumash. It's like you, it's a unique word or phrase. It appears one other time in Chumash. So you say, okay, that's that's an interesting coincidence, but, but there's coincidence happen all the time. But then you keep on reading, and you realize it's not just that one phrase. There's a second phrase that's really unusual. And I'll be darned if it doesn't also appear in that other same parak eight chapters ago. So these two links between the chapters. And then there's this other phrase. And then there's this idea that, that and, and before you know it, there's like 12 things about this parak, which is reminding me of, you know, the parak that happened. I'm going to give you a quick example of it. I mean, imagine I'm I'm reading, um, you know, I'm reading uh, the world, I'm reading the story of the flood, which we just read a couple, uh, you know, couple, couple weeks ago, and you get to the pasuk Vayiskor Elokim as Noach, that's Kol Achaya, that's Kol Abeim Asheri Tabateva, Vayaver Elokim Ruach Halaretz Vayashoku Amayim. God caused a wind to blow over the land, and the waters began to recede. So I said to Yanachi, where else in the Torah do you ever have a Ruach Elokim blowing over waters? Right. Do you ever have a Ruach Elohim blowing over waters in any other place other than the flood?
Gracious? I'm trying to think where. Uh... You do. Right. Gracious at the very, very beginning. Right. Right. Ruach Elohim. You actually have a Ruach Elohim. Merachefes al Pnei Hamayim. It's it's like the second pasuk in Bracious, right? Bracious bar Elohim is Shmaya Zaretz, right? Varz Haidatov Avav Achoshach Pnei Tam. The Ruach Elohim Merachefes al Pnei Hamayim. There was a the, the, now there Ruach doesn't mean wind, right? It means spirit, but the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. But it's interesting the same words. Ruach and Elohim, right, blowing over the waters, and here you have in the flood, right, and you've got this. Elohim causes a ruach to blow on the land, and the waters begin to recede, and all there was was water, right, um, and so that's you know that's that's uh, all there was was water, and all of a sudden the the waters begin to recede. Now, if I just told you that, and I said, okay, so that could be a coincidence, right? Like, that could be a coincidence. It's Lav Dafka that, uh, that Genesis 8.1 is connected to the beginning of Bracious, but it's definitely eyebrow-raising. It's kind of interesting, right? Tell me more. So I would say, okay, but what if there was a second link between them? I mean, what if you were thinking about the flood itself? And you were thinking about the flood, and you were looking back into creation, and you say, well, what does this world look like? In the beginning, God created the Shemaim Varetz. And the only thing I know about the universe was that it was all mixed up. It was all chaotic. And it was very dark. And there was like this wind and there was water. So all I really have there is water. And it's really dark and it's windy and it's very, very chaotic. So Nachi, if I put that all together and I said, it's windy. All I have is water. It's a water world. It's really dark. What does a really windy, chaotic water world that's dark sound like to you? Where else in the Chumash do I have a really windy, chaotic, dark water world? I mean, the only other time you've got it is the Mabel, is the flood. So I've got two links between these, right? So I've got the windy, uh, it's almost as if the first vision of creation feels like uh, it feels like a flood at some level. And then as things start get the, uh, start getting better, there's this Ruach Halakim, it's blowing over the waters. So then you say, all right, that's kind of interesting for him, but I'm still not convinced that there's Taka, a link between uh, Bracious Ches to Bracious Aleph. You'd have to show me more, right? Can you show me more? And it's really the preponderance of links that make you convinced that it's not a coincidence at some point. But, but what's more? So you keep on reading. The next Pasuk says in Bracious Ches. And then what did Hashem do after the flood? So he stopped up the waters of the deep, the Arubosa Shemaim, and he stopped up the storehouses of the heavens. In other words, how did the rain come? The rain come because there were clouds on the one hand, pouring rain from the heavens, and there were Mayanos Tahom. There were waters of the deep that were underneath the water, and the waters from the deep also combined with the water coming from the clouds to make the flood. So what did Hashem do? He stopped up the waters from the deep. There's no more water coming from the deep. And then there's no more water from the clouds. And that's how he caused the water to stop. Now, does that remind you, Nachi, of anything back in creation? Right? When, right? What does it remind you of creation? The answer is sure. Right? The next thing that happened in creation is this really strange verse that, that God was mavdil, right, between mayim lamayim. 
right? God actually separated between two sources of water. There was mayim ma'alarakia, there was heavenly water up there, and there was mayim mitachaslarakia, there was mayim uh, underneath, and all of a sudden, uh, there, were, there was a separation between these two. And there was something called rakia in between. Rakia, we often translate as sky. It's almost like a vision of what would be the flood, where the, the waters from the heavens go back to the clouds, water vapor goes back to the clouds, water from underneath goes under the ground. There's rakia, there's sky in between, right? So there's a third link in order between the world of creation and then the world after the flood. So you say, all right, does it continue? It continues. And you go, the next pasuk you have is, Next thing that happens is the water recedes and dry land is visible. Well, what happened in Bracious? That's the next thing that happened in Bracious. God brings the water in and the dry land appears. So now you have a fourth link and they're not just links, they're links in order, right? So what happens is, and this is a more advanced thing and we'll use this in Aleph Beta all the time, is that the Torah is actually commenting on each other at a certain point. If this link, right now you would say, well, all right, I guess so, but I'm still not convinced. But if I could show you a fifth link and a sixth link and a seventh link, at somewhere between the 22nd and the 23rd link in order between these stories, you'd be convinced that it's not a coincidence. That So, so why is it this way? What's Taka going on? The answer is HaKadosh Baruch is telling you how to read his book, right? He's saying that if you want to know what's going on in story A, look at story B, and story B is almost like an overlay of story A. And if you look at these two things together, they actually comment on each other. Story B is working almost as a kind of commentary on story A. I understand story B through the lens of story A. I understand story A through the lens of story B. And all of a sudden, something really magical happens. It's almost like stereo vision. If you think about why you have two eyes, why do you talk about two eyes, right? What's wrong with one eye? You don't have an eye and a spare. The reason why you have two eyes is because your two eyes have touched two different perspectives. And when you look with these two different perspectives at one thing and your brain makes them come together, you get the feeling of depth. Similarly, when the Torah says, I want to give you the feeling of depth, I'll give you two stories that are linked to each other. And when you overlay one on, on the other, right, all of a sudden they'll pop out into three dimensions. You really want to understand what was going on in the flood, right? you have to understand creation. Well, you have to understand what was going on in creation. It's almost like there was a recreation happening. It wasn't just that God was, was, you know, repopulating the world. God wasn't repopulating the world. He was recreating the world. There was a new creation. And then the question is, okay, so was it the same creation or was it a different creation? Was it different rules? Did it, did it work differently, right? What's the relationship between creation two and creation one? And the Chumash is inviting you to explore this. And the Medrash is full of this, of, of these seeing these Parshias in connection with one another and beginning to comment them. And Chazal saw it in their way. And in a way, you know, this is one of the really powerful pieces of, of methodology. And it's, you know, it, it leads you to, to fascinating and surprising places. And often, by the way, it leads you to new Havanas of Chazal. You know, you can find these things, and then you look back in Medrash Rabbah, and it's like, oh, that's what they were talking about. I have to tell you a funny story about that. I was actually giving a talk to, um, uh, I was giving a talk on Shira Malos. Um, and the Shira Malos, we say before benching, right? 
And and I said, okay, so we begin with hayinu uh, kecholmin, uh, right? We begin with real like dreamers. What's the last image you have in Shiramalis? Right? Bo yavoverina, no se alumosa. The man's going to come and he's going to be holding his alumos. So Nach, if I tell you, so put those first Im- that first image of Shiramalis together with the last one, right? There's a dream, right? Hayinu kecholmin. The very last image, he's, he's no se alumosa. He's bringing his alumos home, a dream about alumos. What does a dream about alumos remind you of in Chumash? A dream about sheaves. Oh, from, from Yosef, yeah. It's Yosef's dream, right? So that's weird. It's like Shiramala is referring to Yosef's dream. It's like, is this the beginning of this connection? It's almost like, is the Torah telling you that Shiramala is supposed to be overlaid on the story of Yosef, right? So I think it's quite possible that that's true. By the way, Rashi even thinks it's true. If you look at Rashi, right, Rashi doesn't know what alumas, right? Alumas is this very unusual word. You never have alumas in the Torah. Do you know how many times you have alumas in the Torah? Exactly twice. In Yosef's dream and in Shiramalas. So much so that in Yosef's dream, Rashi refers to Shiramalas to help you understand what the what, what it even means. That it's these, it's these sheaves, right? So that's remarkable. So could it be that the halach yelech uvach, I mean, if you play it out, so you say, well, who matches up with who? So let's say it's Yosef. By the way, isn't it interesting that that Shuvah Hashem Ashviseinu bring our captives back? Well, what was the whole story of Yosef about? It was about bringing a captive back, right? The very first captive who was ever taken away from his family, away from Eretz Yisrael, who eventually had to come back, was Yosef, right? Shuvah Hashem Ashviseinu, God bring our captives back. Kafikim banegev, afikim. What an unusual word, like these well springs in the desert. But the word afikin, as unusual as it is, is one of those really unusual words that appears in the Yosef story as a verb instead of as a noun. Instead of afikin, which is a noun, afikin as a verb is lo yachol Yosef le hit apek, right? Yosef couldn't hold himself back. And then he began sobbing, almost like flash floods in the desert. Like if you were Yehuda looking at Yosef sobbing, what are you thinking? It's like there was dry all of a sudden, and all of a sudden I'm in the Negev. Shuvah Hashem, This is the moment Yosef comes home. That when he reveals himself to his brothers and he starts sobbing, all of a sudden he says, Ani Yosef, And speaking of sobbing, somebody else has been crying this whole time, but he hasn't been sobbing. There's a man walking around crying. Who's the guy walking around crying who's eventually going to come home with his sheaves? Think of the, right? That, that's got to be, who's the man in the story who's crying the whole time, right? His father is crying and crying and crying. And somehow, Shiramalas is a poetic representation of the Yosef story, almost saying that the very first blueprint of God bringing home captives is how Yosef came home, right? And you'd think it would never happen. Like if you're Yehuda going to Mitzrayim, the last thing in the world, you think you're you're sunk and you think you're going to get in trouble and you think Benjamin's going to be a captive and you think you're going to spend your rest of your life in prison. All of a sudden, the prison guard starts crying and says, I'm your long lost brother. And in an instant, everything changes. And that's the metaphor which, 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 which Tehillim uses as a model for how Geula can come. From how redemption can come, Shuvah Shemesh Visenu. This is how God should bring back all captives in this kind of way. So this 
this approach is something which happens all the time throughout different Sifrei Tanakh, from Tehillim to Chomesh, within Chomesh itself, the Torah is its own commentary. And, it, you know, you can read Rashi, you can read everything, but it's, it's a fascinating world. I'm curious, do you ever use um, Masaira, Masaira Gedele, Masaira Katana? Because that's something that they, that the Masaira, which unfortunately doesn't really exist anymore, but, you know, it does make reference to, was this, how was this word written, and how many times in Tanakh, where else is this word written? Uh, you know, or that, that's an old source. Not really. You don't really use it. Yeah, I haven't really used it that much. I mean, the the one of the um, I mean, creatives become important. Um, if you if you look back into uh, you know a, a fascinating example is in uh, in Megillas Rus, right? If you look at the, at the discussion between the Ami and Rus, between uh, and going down to the garden, there's all these creatives which are fascinating between. Uh, the Shachav to the Sam Simlosayich, who and it gets into this real issue of a tension between Kriyim Ksiv over who is really going down to Boaz. Is it Rus or is it Naomi? Right? And at some level, I think the the that Kriyim Ksiv are overlaying off of each other because both are true. In other words, even though I'm shot, Rus is going down to Boaz, but the Yibum which is being performed is a vicarious Yibum for Naomi. Because remember, Naomi's also childless. Nami's also lost her husband. Nami's also lost her children. And whatever and whatever Yibam, so to speak, works for Rus to be able to keep the name of her dead husband Machlon alive is a way that keeps the legacy of Eli Melach alive, uh, uh, the, the, the husband of Nami as well. So yes, I mean, in general, I think the Torah will use what I call a, a, a no-holds-barred approach to uh, uh, to conveying meaning, right? We'll use every every trick up its sleeve in ways, by the way, that Western literature won't. I mean, if you, you know, you the, the literary techniques, which the, you know, the Torah uses are literary techniques, but they use them in, the Torah uses them in ways that are utterly unique. What I just described to you, intertextuality, you can't find that, that sort of um, using one part of a book to overlay on another part of a book. You know, Shakespeare wasn't written like that. Chaucer wasn't written like that. It's the Torah that's written like that. Um, so it, it's a matter of really listening to the uh, to the Torah and picking up what the Torah itself is doing, and then seeing that as okay, that's one of the tools that God uses. Let me keep that in mind. So um, I'll just mention that the the Parsha con- Companion uh, series, which so far only have Rishon Shemayis, and we'll discuss a little bit. Maybe you'll mention the other volumes will come out, but those are each each parsha has a long essay, kind of what you similar to what you've been discussing. And Aleph Beta has the videos about this. I just before we get into Aleph Beta a little, um, I, I did want to ask you. I mean, are there any? First of all, did you get like direction in any of this from anywhere? This is like more like you're saying unique, your own unique uh, style. Also, are there sources that you use? Obviously, I'm sure you look at Mefarshim, but like in general, other sources or no? It's what you've been mentioning. It's kind of you're using the Chumash itself and not necessarily using classical Mefarshim. Yeah, so in terms of, you know, the the influences that I had that, that you know, that brought me here, I picked up, I, I can't say there was one influence that I had, but there were many influences and I picked up pieces from from many others, um, as well as some of it came from me as well. Um, among the influences I had was, uh, to some extent, Rafi Berkowitz, um, who's a, a Ram and Neri Israel that I was close to for, for many years. The kinds of things that he was doing in Gemara 
were I think very fascinating and innovative. And I felt that that there were there were pieces of that that you could take um, and bring into the the world of uh, Chumash as well. Similarly, Ezra Neuberger, the Rav Ezra Neuberger, the the Rosh Kollel there. Also, you had the pleasure of, of uh, even as a bacher, hearing a hashkafa chabura from him, which was uh, uh, left a, a deep impression upon me. So there were tools that they were using in Gemara, which I found very captivating and found uh, had its application. Um, and, and I kind of applied it to, to Chumash as well. Um, one of those was that, you know, for example, uh, from Rav Ezra Neuberger, one of the interesting ideas was the notion of the uh, what receiver work was what sometimes called the svara chitzona or the svara kaduma, which is that when you were learning Gemara, oftentimes when you um, when you focus on a machlokas, a dispute between two amaraim or two tanaim, it's easy to focus on the nekudas amachlokas and what divides them. But what they taught me to do was to focus also on what unites them. In other words, what's interesting is not just what they're arguing about, but what they agree about. Right? Why? What? What's their hanacha kaduma that that everyone simply agrees that kuliyamamoda? Everybody agrees X. Where did X come from? Right? And and that search for the for the implied X, which is accepted by all, was a fascinating search and something which I've used, you know, in Aleph Beta in many kinds of ways. So there were influences like that, probably more than I can count from different different teachers along the way, and then. Again, you know, much of it was my own kind of noticing. Um, I think that it's, it's, um, and again, I, I just think it's, to some extent, I think each person needs to find their own way because what you're really talking about, you know, one of the things that uh, that came up in that Hashkafa Chabura from Revezer Neuberger early on, he, I remember he gave us a very, uh, influential, at least was influential for me, a two-part Chabura on Dera Halimud. Kind of it was the seven habits of highly effective Lamdanim, right? Of, and, and, and what those were about. Um, and when he was uh, talking about those, what he said is that the way to really become a Lamdan, the way to develop a Dera Halimud was not to try to develop a Dera Halimud. Anybody who tries to try to imitate what the Rebbeim do or come up with something fancy is really bound to fail. Says so the way that you really become great in learning is by focusing on the fundamentals. The, the, he gave a baseball analogy. You know, Cal Ripken back in Baltimore was, you know, the man in Baltimore. So the way Cal Ripken became Cal Ripken wasn't by trying anything fancy. It's by focusing on the fundamentals of being a shortstop, right? What are the fundamentals of learning, the basics of reading comprehension that define, you know, your real grasp of shot? You know, later on in, in art school, this is, these were the things that that became super important in, in writing for the uh, the the Schoenstein Gemara, right? What are the the basic tools of close reading? And those are the things that you really didn't need to learn from anybody. They were just the fundamentals. They were just you know being a clear thinker, understanding. Okay, so how did A lead to B? Like, am I clear on how did A lead to B? Like, what was the transition? Uh, that was the transition. It's it's simply reading comprehension. It's it's basics. As, as I told you before, it's the simple things. It's it's uh, which one of these things is not like the other. Take it apart and put it back together again. Uh, what happens next? And 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 these are the the basic things that we just sometimes forget to do. 
And a lot of my methodology is really just that. It's simple reading techniques. And to some extent, each person needs to find their way with understand what, what does close reading mean to you? When do you feel you really can say, I think I really understand shot. I just think this is the simplest, clearest way of understanding something. And that becomes uh, kind of your, your, your starting position. So in a certain way, what I'm doing isn't so new. It's not like I'm coming along with something um, uh, really edgy out there that that even requires a, a sort of new perspective. I'm just trying to suggest that we do something very old that any book requires of any reader, which is read it carefully. So about Olive Beta, um, obviously we mentioned a while back that there are cartoon videos, and I will obviously include the link um, in the show's notes. Also, Olive Beta. Uh, for those that don't know, is A-L-E-P-H-B-E-T-A dot org. So that's spelled out. And I'll include the links so people can check it out. Um, but for Out of Beta, um, you know, for, for, why cartoon videos? <laughs> Obviously, like you're saying, this is kind of the methodology. This is kind of what you're bringing out. This is your interpretation. This is what, you know, what, you ha- what you're doing. Why, why a cartoon video? Yeah, it's a good question. And I do admit it's a little playful. And I will admit that it's not the classical way that Torah has been transmitted for generations, but it has its advantages. I just got up a video call before you with a family and two little kids, 10 and eight years old, um, from across the world in the Netherlands, who were these huge Olive Beta fans. And, uh, and these girls are watching this like an hour or two a day, right? And it's because kids swim in the world of cartoons, swim in the world of video. Um, and it's, and, and frankly, I've developed a newfound respect for the intelligence of little kids. Um, it, it, you know, we often think we're so sophisticated as adults and kids are, are so much less sophisticated. I'm not convinced that that's true. I think the difference between us and kids is that we have, um, we have more life experience to us than kids do. And life experience, I think, gives you almost this intellectual alphabet of ideas that is at your beck and call. And that, you know, if you tell me a new svara, so I know what a svara is, I understand certain components of svara, so I immediately have the vocabulary to be able to understand what you're talking about. But if I'm a kid, I've never come across that vocabulary before, I have to make it up on the fly. And it, it requires a lot of work to my brain. And, and so it's, it's difficult. It's hard to visualize things without a vocabulary. One of the beautiful things about Alapeta is that it, it's words, but with the videos, the videos aren't there just to be cute. They're there to illustrate ideas. And sometimes the ideas are complex. Sometimes it's text. Sometimes it's just a visual illustration of what's going on or a visual illustration of the structure of how ideas relate to each other. And when you give kids that, and even adults that, what you're doing is you're giving them a ready-made visual vocabulary to understand what it is they're talking about. And all of a sudden, you know, um, things things jump out in, in new kinds of ways. I'll tell you a funny story. There was a guy who came to me. Uh, I did a teacher training thing in, uh, in a school up in, uh, in the tri-state area. And um, so th- I showed some videos. I was talking to the teachers about the methodology behind them. So all the teachers were very excited about it, except this one Rebbe who, you know, was an old timer and he was the very big curmudgeon and he wasn't buying it. And he was like, ah, there's newfangled stuff. He wasn't into it. And then something happened. And at the very end, he like really came alive. It was like, this is amazing. And he came over to me afterwards and he said, he says, I have a question for you. He says, who do you think you're doing these for? Who's your target audience, these kids, these, these videos? 
you know, your cute little videos. So he says, before I could answer, he says, I know who you think your target audience is. He says, do you think your target audience is that you've got all these sophisticated ideas and you're talking to these sophisticated kids and sophisticated adults? You think like in my classroom, you're talking to the top third of my class. That's who your target audience is. He says, let me tell you the truth. He says, it's great for the top third of the class and they'll love it. But you know who your real target audience is? You know who you're really giving? He says, the bottom third of the class. You know what it's like to be in the bottom third of the class? You know what it's like? to not really hop what's going on and all the other kids kind of get it. And when there's a joke in the classroom that you don't really even get the joke, but you have to laugh along because that's what you do. And, you know, and for these kids, they've never tasted the Amkos of Torah. They've never tasted real depth. And what you're doing with the visuals and what the clear explanations and, 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 and leading them through piece by piece into a world of depth, and, and with these cartoons is you're literally, it's Kriyas Yamsa for these kids. You're giving them a, an entree into an intellectual world that they would have otherwise never had into a world of the beauty of Torah and connection to Torah that they simply never would have had. It's life-changing for them. That's who your audience is. And that was a very humbling thing to hear, you know, that you know, sophisticated as you think you are, it's, it's, it's those kids that are the, so it's a very wide audience, but some of the, somehow the, the 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 shiluv the 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 merger of sophisticated Torah clearly presented with with cartoon animation seems to work in its own quirky way. You really just answered my next question, which was you know who is it geared towards? Now you know interestingly, I'll, I'll but I'll ask it. You know, you kind of just said it, but about the, is the books the same way? You know, you're doing now the Parsha Companion, you have Rosh Hashemais, and I said I'll link to those in the show's notes, and you know, um, you're you're working on the other ones. I assume I'll ask you about that, but. It, the the books obviously don't have cartoons in them. I, mean, I don't know why there's no uh, cartoon images in there, but there's not. Uh, so, uh, spoiler alert. But you know, interestingly, the the tone that you use and the way that they're written is very engaging. It's almost like you know we're schmoozing here. They're a little bit like schmoozy. It's not like you you mentioned this earlier. You alluded to it. It's not like taking up this heavy chumish safer, even though there are you know like real quote unquote heavy ideas in there. It's written very engagingly. At least I felt it that way. You know, going through some of them. So. I mean, is that is it done with the same thought in mind that you want to just, is that the same reason for that or no? Yeah, you know, I was searching for a writing style that worked. And, you know, honestly, for many years, I'd been working on the art scrolls and it's a very different writing style when you're writing for the art school Gemara. You know, it's, it's much more hands-off. Uh, what I was searching for here really was something intimate. You know, what would it be like to write a book that literally felt like you were having a conversation with the author but I didn't also want to sort of just push my ideas on you. What I really wanted to do was engage the reader in a quest, in a, in, in a, in a journey and say, look, I had a journey of discovery and I want to try to recreate something of that journey for you. So I'm not going to tell you what to think, but, you know, let's explore this. I'll, I'll share with you some of my questions. You think about some of your questions and it's like, could you create that in writing, that sense of a mystery unfolding, a sense of a journey. It's a, a done sort of through a conversation, almost as a fireside chat. So that was the goal. It's not a conventional way of, again, of writing a safer. You won't find Sfarim written that way. There are some people, frankly, that it will turn off. If you go on the Amazon reviews, they're generally pretty good, but you'll get some Amazon reviews that will be like, oh, I couldn't stand the style. Uh, you know, it was too informal for me. It is a kind of informal, chatty style. Um, but it's 
designed to try to um, recreate something Socratic, recreate the, recreate the feel of a conversation with a real sense of discovery. You know, and if I've done my job, then, you know, um, first of all, readers don't always have to agree with me. They can go on a journey of discovery and end up somewhere else than me. And that's fine also. Um, but I'm, I'm seeking to try to share some of the love of the material and really the love of the Torah itself that I've experienced by seeing some of its, some of its layers. Um, and uh, it's a thrill to be able to, to put out books that have a chance of doing that. You mentioned they're Socratic. I think I've heard enough of the had enough of the Socratic method being a law student. So yes. <laughs> enough of that. Um, so, so I mean, what what is the you mentioned the Amazon reviews? I mean, what what generally has the reception been though in general? Not not so much the cartoon aspect, but just of the of your style, especially you know more Shiva world. You know, just now what 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 feedback have you heard regarding you know this style and something you know that's something it is a little different, a little unique. It is a little unique. I mean, I, I'm, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, you know, I was learning with my stepfather, Oliver Shalom, uh, and, uh, you know, occasionally he would send me, uh, you know, I, I'd read something with him and I'd work on a shot and 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 and, and share with him some of the, the work that I was doing and stuff. He'd be very fascinated. And then he'd be like, oh, one second, like, who says this? And I was like, well, like, you know, we're just, it's the shot, right? Like we're learning through the shot. Like that's, you know, he would say, no, no, like you can't, how, how can you say such a thing? It's like, and he wasn't used to that. You know, you'd come from a world where like, you know, you, you, you read the Mepharshim and, and you pretty much weren't really going to think outside of that box. You know, my view is that, look, you know, we have a Masora through the ages that, 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 that's what people do, right? And in, in, in non-halachic, uh, you know, in 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 divrei agada or in divrei pshat and chumash, uh, you know, the Ramban did what the Ramban did, and the Sforna did what the Sforna did, and the Hamikdaver did what the Hamikdaver did, and Hirsch did what he did, and then the Mavim did what he did, and all the way down to Emes Liakov, you know, in our generation, and every generation has to come and really look at the text themselves and 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 see it, and again, uh, you know, keep Chazal in mind and and. And see how it all comes together. But anyway, in the story, so my, my stepfather said, you know, you've really got to run this by some Gedola Yisrael, you know, what they think. So he sent me up with a meeting with Ramosha Shapiro Zetzel. So I, you know, I was in Israel and I sat down and I met with Ramosha Shapiro for about three hours or so. And, uh, you know, I went through my, uh, what I considered my most controversial material with them. You know, I, I did a piece on Yehud and Tamar with them. I did a piece on the Aserah Sadibros. And you know, at the end, at the end, he was like, he says, "This is fantastic." He says, "You should go back and uh, go back to America and build a school, so and, you know, and, and teach this." This is before Aleph Beta. This is really before the you know the internet was of age to really be a, a, a way to disseminate it. And I said to him, "What do you mean build a school?" Well, he says, "Well, what you're actually teaching is you're a Shemayan." I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "You know, people read Medrash and they think it's craziness, right? And what you're showing is that Medrash isn't craziness." The way Chazal were coming was from a deep analysis of themes in, in Pshat and, and, and were, and, uh, you know, people will read this, non from people will read this, people will come to this and they'll, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a Munas is what you're showing them and, and you should build a school. So, um, the, you know, it's, 
I didn't build a school, uh, but I didn't see myself as, you know, that's the Peter principle. You get promoted to your, your, your position of incompetence. I'd be a terrible administrator, a terrible uh, principal, but I, in a way, Aleph Beta becomes kind of like a school. It's a, it's a community of uh, thousands and thousands of people. Um, we've got uh, about 11,000 subscribers and about 100,000 free users. It's, it's really something. And it's, 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 a, it's an astonishing thing. And it's, it's a community of people who are engaging around Torah in a, in a way that's, uh, uh, that's meaningful. And it's a, it's a real privilege to be, to, to help kind of create that community. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a thrill to be part of that ride. So we mentioned the Parsha Companion, Bracious and Shemais are now available. Uh, any idea when the next volume will I'm come out? I'm working on Vayikra, but it's, uh, it takes a while to write these things. I consider myself a pretty decent writer, but it takes me forever. I'm, I'm not, I don't write quickly. I, and I write and I rewrite. And it's, you know, there's a saying with writing that you got to be able to kill your babies. It's, uh, you've got to be able to write something and harve over it and really work on it and be able to come back to it a week later and just uh, delete the whole thing. And um, I've had my share of that. So I'm about uh, two thirds of the way through Vayikra. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll have it out soon. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, Bamidbar and Varm too. To some extent, it's, you know, I'm starting with what, with the work in Alabeda with what we do with the videos. Some of the material is new and hasn't appeared on the videos at all. Some of it started with the videos and this is kind of a further refinement and extension of those ideas. Uh, as you mentioned, it's taking one idea in kind of a fairly long essay format and uh, the kind of thing that can be read leisurely, you know, after uh, your Friday night challenge or whatever it is um, and, uh, and shared with, with folks on, on uh, Shabbos afternoon. Um, so we're, uh, um, again, about two thirds of the way through Vayikra, uh, I'm in the middle of Tazri and Mitzora, which is, uh, its own special kind of challenge. Um, so, you know, we'll see where that goes, but, uh, uh every once in a while there's a deep dive, right? So in the same that you have, you know, you were looking at, um, the, the piece on Rivka, if you were Rebecca's lawyer, which is kind of a 10,000 word piece, it's one of the deeper dives. So that's probably what Tazri and Mitzora will end up being in Vayikra. Okay, so are there any? I, I so I did mention I'll mention one last time that I'm going to include the link to Aleph Beta, the link to the to the books, and uh, perhaps I'll try to include the links to your other books as well that you wrote. Are there any other future projects? Or right now it's Aleph Beta, and you're focusing on finishing completing the Parsha Companion for now. I've got about forty books that I'd like to write. It's a the the challenge is actually sitting down and doing them. I mean, the other future projects is uh, uh, there's a piece on Asha Schail, which I'd really love to get into book form. Uh, there's a piece in Shema, which I would love to do as a as a Shema companion, a kind of tefillah companion, um, and uh, and then going back to uh, one of the greatest challenges, which is the two creation stories in Bracious, uh, Bracious one and Bracious two, and how do you understand the merger between those two very mysterious stories? Um, I did a a discovery in that, which I consider. Uh, I think it has remarkable implications that the stories are not meant to be read separately, but are meant to be read in tandem. If you actually map out the stories side by side, you'll find fascinating links between them that correspond going all the way down. And again, as I talked to you before, how one story can end up being a mafarish on the other story. It seems like Genesis 2 
is actually meant as a commentary on Genesis 1, and Genesis 1 comments on Genesis 2, and the full story of creation is that mysterious merger between them. So that's a book too. So Halavai, I should get a chance to publish them all, um, but uh, those are some of the things I'm working on. Sounds good. Looking forward. Okay. And uh, with that, thank you very much, Rabbi Foreman, for joining me. Okay. Thank you, Nachi. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, thanks for your work and bringing uh, the excitement of Svarim and of authors who might not otherwise get to the uh, to the to the view of a larger public into places where we can hear them speak. And it's uh, to me, it's been a joy listening to your podcast and getting to encounter folks that I uh, otherwise would never have stumbled across. My pleasure. I'm glad that uh, that that's the case. Thank you again. Okay.